0: You're listening to Icebreakers, the podcast exploring all things Canadian and Eurasian, business, culture, and personalities. The series is produced by CERBA, the Canada, Eurasia, Russia Business Association. We're a nonprofit supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. I'm your host, Nathan Hunt, one of the founders of CERBA and former chairman of the National Board. I invite you to tune in regularly for valuable insights relating to the region. Hello, everybody. I'm joined today by Margaret Scott, career federal public servant who's worked with the RCMP, Fisheries and Oceans, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, Canadian Heritage and Industry Canada. She served with Global Affairs Canada at the embassy uh, in Moscow from 1991 to 94, and as the ambassador to the Republic of Kazakhstan from 2009 to 2014 with concurrent accreditation to the Kyrgyz Republic and the Republic of Tajikistan. She worked with the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission to develop an international nuclear strategy and has participated as an accredited Canadian observer to elections in Belarus and Ukraine, a thankless task, I'm sure. Uh, She's currently senior fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, and we are very pleased to have you with us today. Margaret, hello.
1: Good morning and good evening. Thank you so much.
0: And I should say Merry Christmas. It's almost Christmas, uh, isn't it, where you are?
1: Well, both, yeah, impending Gregorian calendar Christmas, 24th, 25th, then New Year, and then uh, Julian calendar Christmas, January 6th and 7th. So happy forthcoming holidays to everyone.
0: And dare I add Julian calendar New Year's to that list? Yeah, you know, we, we have lots of holidays in Russia. January
1: well. 13th, so I guess we won't right. see you until the 14th.
0: That's right. The old New Year, as they say. You, your, your mother's last name was uh, Karolkevich. Before she married your father? uh, Polakiewicz. Sorry, mispronounced that. Was she of Polish descent? What's your background?
1: Both my parents were born in Poland just before World War II. And after um, the war, uh, they were declared stateless, ended up in resettlement camps. They were called displaced persons in Germany. From where they emigrated to Canada in 1949, my father first to Saskatchewan on a farm contract, of course. My mother followed six months later. What was really historically interesting was they both uh, came over on the Queen Elizabeth. They landed in Halifax Pier 1, and their names are on the passenger list at the Pier 1 Museum in Halifax. Is that right? Yep. They ended up in uh, settling in Winnipeg, which is where I was born. And there it begins.
0: Well, lovely, lovely. Now, you began your federal career with the uh, RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Were you a Mountie on a horse? Were you in an office? What were you doing for the RCMP?
1: I was in an office. No horse for me. I began my career in the uh, Federal Public Service as a summer student with the RCMP in something called a single fingerprint section. So I couldn't tell your horse apart from the other horses, but I can pretty well tell your fingers apart from somebody else. Then I went on to work for the then Secretary of State in Ottawa and I moved to Montreal uh, where I worked with employment and immigration centers for students. Then I worked for the citizenship court for Pierre Laporte's widow, Madame Juge Laporte. And then I worked on employment projects in the northern part of Quebec, Lac Saint-Jean.
0: You have a diverse portfolio.
1: Yeah, I learned how to, how to race trans amps.
0: There you have it. Now, uh, you did join Ag Canada's international team in 1987.
1: Yeah. I, w- I went on to um, work at Natural Resources Canada when I moved back to uh, Ottawa, uh, Fisheries and Oceans, and Agriculture Canada.
0: So uh, was it, uh, in 1987, was it hard to get an international assignment as a woman at the time, or was that uh, not a difficult thing?
1: You know, I have to credit two people. I was sitting very comfortably at Agriculture Canada and the trade and trade policy desk uh, when Right Honorable, the late Right Honorable Don Mazenkowski, decided in response to a call from our ambassador in Moscow that I would be the one who would come to Moscow to assist with some of our line of credit issues and trade issues. And... It subsequently, after the late Right Honorable Don Mazenkowski it was the Honorable Charlie Mayer, who's still in Winnipeg, who was the wheat board um, minister, and then became the agriculture minister, who kept me there for a long time to continue to resolve issues.
0: You say kept you there. Do you mean in Moscow? Yes. How long were you in Moscow? What years?
1: From February 91 to late 94.
0: That was an exciting time to be living in Moscow, and I think you even had a few young kids in tow, did you not?
1: I I have two of my own children, plus I had guardianship for a 15-year-old, so I went with three children.
0: Wow. And a single mother. That must have been a challenge.
1: I didn't talk about that much.
0: (laughs) Did you have daycare? You must have had daycare then.
1: Well, you couldn't then in 1991, but the 15-year-old would greet the children from school, and quite often they would be at the embassy after they were dropped off. I, I must credit most recently deceased our ambassador, Michael Bell. He died two two weeks ago. He and his wife, Christine, were most amazing support to myself and the children. Without them, it would have been very difficult, and my colleagues in both the political and trade sections were superb.
0: I mean, it must have been difficult just to live in Moscow. In those days, uh, the stores were empty. How how did you even get around or or buy food?
1: I fought in the uh, local markets, making sure that I took limited products so as not to take cabbage and carrots and fresh produce away from locals. There was one Western store at the time, which carried sundries, Peter Eustaceon. And thanks to 12 years of work in Moscow region with our livestock, our seed potato, our McCain Fry technology, George Cohn's Moscow McDonald's opened up. So um, it was an amazing effort, as I said, 12 years before the first store on Pushkin Square opened up.
0: So what were you doing during the three and a half years that you were in Moscow? Did you have, did you, were you involved in McDonald's? Were you involved in uh, sale of c- Canadian produce to, to Russia?
1: I was uh, certainly involved in our trade, which went from grain to agriculture, food to livestock to genetics. One of the important things that I was dealing with was the ever-changing, at customs point, uh, phyto- and zoosanitary certificates. And once again, I have to thank the former Minister of Agriculture, the former Finance Minister, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Late night calls from me because of calls from our Canadian companies to say that their products had been held up at customs. And within two, three hours, I would get a call back to say our products had cleared. A lot of these products were short shelf life, such as the lobsters for Friday nights at the former Aerostar Hotel, which was used to be joint between um, Aeroflot and an IMP company in Halifax. The leaf cutter bees, nobody's heard of those, but they were pollinators for alfalfa, which was required as feed. And so these certificates had to be confirmed very quickly, and this product had to leave very quickly, so there was no, um, so we didn't lose the product. And then Chisholm, uh, which represented all of our pork sales from Canada, we were able, over time, it took six, seven, eight months to work with the Ministry of Agriculture to get the zoosanitary conditions that we needed in order to do our first shipments of pork to Russia.
0: Canadian pork, and that ended up being uh, most I, I, I would say not most, that's not right, one third of Canada's total exports to Russia for many years in the late 2000s and the early 2010s. You paved the way for that for that you you, you were there when the very first Canadian pork arrived, weren't you?
1: I actually was at the airport at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Well, there you have it. (laughs) Importantly, because I was dealing with uh, agriculture, I was also dealing with the Ministry of Finance on debt servicing. The largest debt that the former Soviet Union had to Canada was its line of credit to the Canadian Wheat Board for grain shipments. And we were able to confirm that this was a sovereign debt. As a result of being confirmed as a sovereign debt, we actually began to get payments on our line of credit. So that took a year and a half, but so that was extremely important because I worked in agriculture as quickly as collectivization happened in during Stalin's time, decollectivization happened under IFI different loan banks. And that was that was critical because it affected particularly remote areas collective and state farms which overnight changed and as you know these collective and state farms is not a farm or an enterprise it's a whole village and so there was a lot of disruption and exaggerated disparities in society and the economy and by 1993 there was a nostalgia from the former for the former soviet union i was therefore fortunate as a result of dealing with agriculture that i was in every single part of the just about uh, of russia and the former soviet states so the newly independent states
0: I'll, I'll tell you uh having a little experience in agriculture myself i can remember bringing uh, american and canadian farmers over to meet with their russian counterparts and hearing the conversation go something like this on our farm we have a swimming pool do you on our farm, we have a post office. On our farm, we have a hospital and daycare, and it became very quickly evident that the the, the term farm meant one thing in Russia and an entirely different thing in the West. You know? yeah. So, what you said about the farm being a community is uh, is very true. We we uh, and that was one of the reasons why agriculture was so inefficient. You know, it's it's uh, all these uh, uh, municipal services are important. But it's hard to recover the costs if uh, if you have to recover them only through the sale of what you produce on the farm because you're not going to cover the cost of a swimming pool and a clinic and, uh, and a movie theater uh, just by selling wheat.
1: You know? the, the rural development at that point was not elevated and, and it was cut off from the uh, urban centers. The, the other thing, the uh, disruption on the farms also allowed for not great practices. And uh, I felt awfully sorry for, for farmers who spent forever in, um, in state offices getting permits, paying taxes. And again, those things just changed all the time and, and until a little bit more discipline was brought in. The first two years after the coup in 91, and I remember being on the bridge and I remember uh, Moscow McDonald's sending in trucks of food for the poor soldiers who had not eaten for three days.
0: This was during the first coup in 1991.
1: August 91. Oh I, wow! I woke up at five o'clock in the morning, five thirty, and I heard what I thought was thunder. The sun was rising. I couldn't see any clouds. I looked down, and the tanks were approaching the White House. And I called. Our Canadian embassy to say, listen, you might want to get in touch with the Americans because the American embassy was right behind the White House. Anyway, it was after three years, uh, three days. I mean, a new a new regime was put in place. That also made it difficult for our um, not just agriculture, but all of our delegations that were coming over because the negotiations on agreements were protracted because the first six months. Ministers changed almost every week. So whom you were going to meet with was not whom you signed the deal with.
0: I remember those days, Margaret. And I remember uh, in 1989 and 90 signing something with the federal government and then finding out in 1992 that there is no federal government anymore. It's all it's all uh, RSFSR or you know, the, the, the Russian government or the Ukrainian government or the Kazakh government. You know, that we were dealing with suddenly 15 newly independent states rather than the old Soviet Union that we had.
1: Right. My, uh, because of agriculture, my exposure to the regions was early and it was very comprehensive. For example, my visits to uh, nuclear fueling stations in Murmansk, and then also looking at issues of trade potential being in Siberia, ports, of course, and then also in Yakutsia. An interesting non-agriculture and non-trade fact was looking at the wooden houses in Yakutsk and seeing one that resembled a smaller model of Chateau Montebello outside in Quebec, where we've had G7 meetings. And it was interesting, even though the architects for the Chateau Montebello were Finnish, etc., one of the original carpenters was from Yakutsk. So there were lots of people connections. They talk about that, it actually happened.
0: Oh, good Lord. And we, we recently had an episode with uh, a Yakut native uh, uh, Valery Maximov, who, uh, as you know, serves as uh, Russia's uh, trade representative to Canada right now. And he talked about Canadian companies building homes in Yakutia. But anyway, getting back to your, your time in Russia, uh, I want to talk about Central Asia, but let's finish Russia first. You also served as an observer for elections. And I guess that wasn't in Russia, that was in Ukraine and Belarus. What, what was that like? You told me during our during our last talk, you told me some interesting stories.
1: So that happened, my observation, OACEOD or observation missions happened after I retired. And for example, I was in Maidan Square in 2013. I was in Minsk. How is that? Those transformations were more difficult in those countries than in some of the other countries. The, the elections were more disrupted the young people were protesting. It was very difficult and it, there was a lot more violence. Wow. And, and, you know, the objective of the OECD dear, uh, office of democratic institutions observations is to determine whether it's parliamentary or presidential elections, whether they're fair, right. And just, and, it was difficult to determine if they were fair and just, and one of the major stumbling blocks sometimes was actually getting the ballots to the electoral commissions in the capitals.
0: And did, why was that a stumbling block? They didn't have adequate transportation.
1: Depending on depending on the oh no, the cars were carrying the ballots and sealed envelopes. It was a question of it was a question of where those ballots were coming from, and the anticipation of non support for the established government or president.
0: I think you're hinting that you saw irregularities.
1: One and I think the uh, the reports would say that there were irregularities. But but you know this was also, you know, I put it in context. This is also new. Elections were new. And multi-party options were unheard of. So this was also new. It's not not unexpected that there would be huge difficulties. And so one of the objectives of the OSCE to, is not just to monitor, but also to help to help ensure that the processes are compliant, right? So it takes some time.
0: Let's move to Central Asia. You were ambassador uh, of Canada to Kazakhstan uh, and accredited to Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan at the same time, from 2009 to when? Was it 2014?
1: It was 2006 to 2009.
0: Oh, good Lord. I have my I have my dates wrong. Sorry about that. Uh, okay. In 2009, then, that would have been the time when we dedicated the new Canadian embassy. Was it not?
1: Yes. So, yes. So, my mission terminated with the um, declaration of our embassy, a new embassy in the new capital.
0: In the new capital of Astana.
1: Yes. But, yes. At the time, it was Astana. And the Honourable Stockwell Day was there. And uh, once again, we were fortunate to have, I'm not sure, Canada had amazing access to the Prime Minister at the time, Masimov, the Ministers of Foreign Affairs and the different departments, uh, natural resources, industry, trade negotiators, and we also had a great access to mayors of remote, both mining and, and rural areas. And it was really important because it was it was fascinating to learn of the uh, junction of multitude of cultures, religions, different geopolitical interests in, in the region, and the different levels of economic and social stability. I have always said that... Um, leading up to legislative and regulatory and policy reforms. For example, in Kazakhstan, the impetus was to create less disparity, more of a middle class. But there were two, I often talk about it, there were two, for me, important developments which led the way. One was macroeconomic reform, and that was establishing a banking and a financial sector, critical. And the other was... um, former President Nazarbayev's Bolshak scholarship program. There are, as of today, 100,000 Kazakh students that have studied abroad. So they, they bring back skills, knowledge, and new thinkers to the new capital. Originally, they got jobs in the public sector, and then as the private sector emerged, they also get jobs in the private sector.
0: So that's been a very effective program, you think?
1: I think it's effective in terms of mobilizing change.
0: Now the country has had outstanding economic growth, uh, since, uh, uh, achieving independence in 1991. Of course it was slow to start with, but, uh, the growth was much better in the two thousands. Do you think that they have, uh, that they'll be able to reach their goal of being one of the world's top 30 most developed countries by the year 2050?
1: The answer, the short answer is yes, but there are three things that mitigate against quick rise. Is number one, it would be right now would be COVID-19, which has disrupted economic systems. Um, Mm -hmm. Number two, it will be the support for additional reforms during this really difficult time. And number three, they have amazing investment laws, legal laws on paper, and it will be the continued ability and capacity to enforce those laws.
0: Are they difficult to enforce now? Do you
1: think they're not being
0: enforced to the full extent?
1: You would probably be aware of this as much as I am. It is a question of the breadth and scope of reforms in 30 years has been massive. Is there the capacity to enforce?
0: Interesting. Well, you've told us a lot about Kazakhstan. What do you think about uh, Kyrgyzstan? Did you ever get to, to, you must have been in Bishkek on more than one occasion?
1: On many occasions, almost weekly, because of our gold operations, Terra, and also because of our cooperation with uh, His Highness the Aga Khan's University of Central Asia. On the gold negotiations, both uh, former presidents that I, I had the pleasure of dealing with were the critical points of contact on behalf of our, our, of our company, Centera. With respect to the University of Central Asia, as you know, the campuses are now in Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan, and they provide ability for, for students and teachers. So there are a lot of teachers from Canada, and the head of the University of Central Asia is Canadian, and that means the education there, particularly in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, is in place, and they often call them mountain universities because normally these young people would not be able to leave home to study abroad, unlike in Kazakhstan. So this education was extremely important.
0: So you you segued very nicely from gold to education. Education, I think, has a happier story to it. But tell us a little about the about, about the gold dispute. It's still in dispute, isn't it? Is there, there, uh, do you think the Kyrgyz government was fair? Uh, With Canada, at least at the beginning, and things got worse, or where are we there?
1: I think there have been iterative legal agreements and contracts. I think the question is always ownership and uh, also royalties and a desire for more controlling shares. They are always, they can avail themselves of any law firm in the world that they want. At the beginning, the issues were very much dealing with local law firms and understanding investment, the the level of investment and the level of royalties. I remember one of the IFIs present at one of the discussions said, we will be watching how Sentara works out as that will be an example for us as to whether or not the Kyrgyz government follows international practices.
0: And so far, the jury's still out, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, everybody wants a piece of the auction.
0: <laughs> Nothing new there. Well, we don't need to get into the detail there. But I'm sure we'll let the lawyers do that. Tell us about Tajikistan. I've never been. I've never been to Dushanbe. You must have been there a time or two or three. What uh, What are your impressions of that country?
1: These countries are signatories to the Ottawa Convention. And so the, it's the anti-personnel landmine. So we had a lot of work with them on this, and then we the removal of them. And then we also had a lot of work with them in terms of aid to local farms, particularly women working in farms and ancillary businesses like bakeries. Most of the women were left alone in Tajikistan because of the men being, many of the men being migrant workers abroad. And that would mean mostly Russia at the time that I was there. And so these women were left with children and with farms or inability to make some money. So, so a lot of our aid, as well as international aid, went towards farms and, and agriculture. The other partner there on business was, uh, again, the University of Central Asia and His Highness the Aga Khan. There were hotels there that were often empty, but they provided space for local businesses and I remember saying to his highness once, I said, you know, programs, support programs in Canada have a have a ceiling, you know, at one point they have a threshold, at one point they end, they don't, you know, three years, five years, two years. And I remember his highness looking at me and saying, well, do you see things getting better quickly? And I go, not really. And he goes, that's how long we're here for. And I think that long-term view is what was critical, and it certainly was instructive for me. And watching the U.S. and EU build the bridges for markets to Afghanistan, being in the south in Horog, where the products flowed two ways, that was critical as well.
0: So I've got to ask you, you repeated several times, His Highness. I'm going to show my ignorance. Who are we talking about? What king are we talking about here?
1: His His Highness the Aga Khan.
0: That's the proper term to, to refer to him. Yes. Interesting.
1: Or you, you could drop that preface but, and talk about the University of Central Asia. But, but in addition to the University of Central Asia, His Highness the Aga Khan was also involved in the development of entrepreneurship and hotels. And even though they stood empty, the point was it was work for local people.
0: And you talked uh, a little bit uh, about your work promoting women in, in trade and promoting women's rights. As I recall, you received uh, the Senate Award for Women in International Business. Was that because of your work in promoting uh, uh, the role of women in business, or was it simply a recognition of, of your own accomplishments?
1: I was working with women in international business. I also did a lot of submissions to the hearings of Senate committees. I talked to them about some of the modernization of the laws as such as the introduction of the legalization of abortion under 23 weeks. I also talked to them about the fact that the two leading women on trade policy negotiations, on WTO accessions, on trade in general, were women in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan who ultimately became deputy ministers and ultimately got postings as ambassadors. At one point in the Senate, in Kazakhstan, there was a parity just like there was a gender parity in Canada, and it was important to see that these reforms didn't just go to traditional business, but it also went to the position of women as entrepreneurs in these societies, critical, again, because of migrant workers.
0: Good for you for, for supporting women. There, I never thought about that, but you're right. We see migrant Tajiks and Uzbeks all over Russia, all over Moscow, really. And uh, that, that must mean that uh, there are women back home managing the home fires. You know? And
1: and a lot of the returns don't often get back from their husbands from wherever they are for a number of reasons. And so they do need to rely on the local economy for jobs and revenue.
0: Now, you were, um, you were with us, I think, during the, uh, one of the initial sessions, maybe the initial session of the Kazakhstan Canada Business Council, which was uh, a joint venture put forward by Serba and the Kazakhstan Chamber of Commerce in the beginning. What, uh, what did you think about the KCBC initiative? Uh, what did you think about the sessions, the working groups? Was that uh, useful? And what do, you, what do you remember from the sessions that took place while you were the ambassador?
1: Well, first of all, I thought the work was concrete. That was what was really important. The thing is that, and the people who came to the table were prepared. So that's also really important. These were not pie in the sky discussions. And I have to say that Kazakhstan, there's always a shopping list, as you know, but they were very specific about needs, affordable housing, Energy efficient builds, uh, transitions to new economies, aviation clusters, earth sen- sensing satellites, technology transfer, mining technology, aerospace, legal assistance. They were very specific, and healthcare as well, because uh, you know the largest nuclear polygon is in northern Kazakhstan. It's a legacy of, of the Soviet Union, not Russia. It was closed by former President Nazarbayev like three days after the 91 coup. Well, one month, it was August, September, it was closed. The health issue in terms of cancer, goiters and children, the legacy is huge, not only on farms and livestock, but on children and families. Healthcare, heart disease, hospitals, they became a priority. Much easier dealing when the shop, you know, on requests when the shopping list is concrete. And we were able to bring to the table people who could, experts in Canada who could respond to those requirements.
0: Well, I can say that your leadership as ambassador was critical, I think, in the formative years of the council. So we'll say thank you to you for, for, for taking that on.
1: Oh, it was a pleasure. But once again, I, I have to underline that my access to then, he was not president then, to His Excellency Takayev, His Excellency Nazarbayev, and ministers, and the prime minister. I, I, I cannot believe it. Every time I asked for a meeting, I got it. Wow. Small country like Canada, we did quadruple our trade during my time. We expanded it from grain, well, it was actually agriculture machinery up north, to grain, to Livestock on hoof, to genetics, and then technology on mining.
0: Well, good for you.
1: The Caspian Sea is important because it's offshore drilling, and in uh, Atlantic Canada, we have offshore drilling.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, I know it's a challenging environment there, but uh, and offshore is completely off limits for, for for Russia right now. But we can still uh, we can still work on the the Caspian projects with Kazakhstan. Now, tell me about what happened after you left Central Asia. I know you worked with Canada's nuclear regulator to expand an international nuclear strategy. What was was that about? How does Canada fit into the international nuclear strategy?
1: Canada used to be number one uranium producer in the world. Then there was Kazakhstan and Australia. Subsequently, Kazakhstan became the number one uranium supplier, producer, followed by Canada and then Australia. It was certainly the impetus to get a strategy which would lead us ultimately to a nuclear non-proliferation agreement bilateral between Canada and Kazakhstan, which we did. And that was critical.
0: So that was that agreement signed? That was successful?
1: Oh, yes. The minister at the time was John Baird. So, yes.
0: Now, you say Kazakhstan overtook Canada as the as the world's number one uranium producer. That was uh, to a great extent because of Canadian investment in Kazakhstan, was it not?
1: That's right. We had Chemical. Uh, who has been in Kazakhstan and still is for years, with substantial investments, substantial production, and extremely good partnership with Kazakhstan. And as you know, President of Chemico, Tim Gitzel, is the co chair on the Kazakhstan Canada Business Council, together with Pirmatov, the chairman and CEO of uh, Kazatan Prom. So, Canada on nuclear has enjoyed very positive, very positive discussions.
0: What a nice, uh, nice story that is. You know, we have we have bad news in Russia. We have bad news in Kyrgyzstan, uh, from Kazakhstan. It's all been good, uh, at least commercially.
1: Oh, there have been some issues where companies have been dissolved or were bought by other foreign nationals where there were legal impediments, where companies would ask me to end up in court for them just to witness how the trial and the witnesses and testimony would roll out. The fact that I was allowed in courts, the fact that companies trusted me uh, when they didn't have a presence on the ground, when it was all new, I, I think that speaks to both, again, the Kazakh government, the Kyrgyz government and the people.
0: There are so many leaders with the name Margaret. We've have Margaret Thatcher, Margaret Atwood, Princess Margaret. It seems that you are destined to be a leader. What, what do you think made you a leader?
1: I don't know that I'm very much of a leader, but I do believe in teams. And I had the privilege of working through my federal public service for amazing people. And I remember one assistant deputy minister at Fisheries, as he said, come with me to the executive meeting. I don't have time to send you on a management course but this is important you will speak to the cleaner your assistant the deputy and the minister in the same tone you will treat them equally
0: good life advice it sounds like
1: yeah that was my management course
0: you talk about uh, you talk about good teams I should uh, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, say thank you on behalf of Chisholm as you know I worked with Chisholm in the Russian market for 25 years uh, and the late great Tim Chisholm, was effusive in his praise and support of uh, Margaret Scott. He remembered you fondly, and uh, uh, I think was, was very grateful for your role in opening up Eurasian markets to Canadian pork, which uh, as, as we know for about 15 years was, uh, 20 years was booming business.
1: Yes, uh, very important, but every opening is important. And Mr. Chisholm, I did have the opportunity of meeting him on Lake Russo in in Ontario with my children, and uh, we were delighted to meet him, And, and he personally thanked me. I think, if I can add one thing, it's one of the imperatives for change in Central Asia is that, unlike in Canada, or in a lot of Western countries where the majority of people are seniors. And I'm not looking at you, Nathan, right now. I'm, I'm thinking about me.
0: <laughs> I'm in Russia anyway. I don't count.
1: <laughs> right. But, you know, there's a whole new generation of young adults that has grown up. And the majority, almost 40%, are under 30. So there is an imperative to make sure that there are social and economic opportunities and cooperation.
0: Yes, we, we, we need to provide jobs. We, we need to make sure that the, the, the youth have uh, something to do in our economy. And, I, and to be honest, I'm not worried about the youth. I'm, worried about, I'm more worried about you and me, Margaret. <laughs> and that leads me to my next question. What does the future hold for Margaret Scott? Just to wrap it up, what are your plans for the future?
1: As a pensioner, maybe cryogenics, maybe transferring a little bit more information before I quietly disappear into the western sunset.
0: lovely. Lovely. Well, thank you so much, Margaret, for being with us uh, today. It's been a great discussion. I've been joined today by Margaret Scott federal public servant who worked with RCMP, Fisheries and Oceans, and Ag and Ag Food Canada. Was stationed at the Moscow Embassy from 1991 to 94, uh, and was ambassador plenipotentiary of Canada to the Republic of Kazakhstan, accredited to Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan from 2006 to 2009, in spite of the fact that I got those dates wrong during the introduction, but now now we've figured that out. Thank you so much for being with us today, Margaret. It's been a great discussion.
1: Pleasure, and happy holidays to everyone.
0: Happy holidays to you too. Bye-bye.
1: Critical to any of the successes that I've had have been the teams at the embassies, but also at home in Ottawa and the different ministries, plus global affairs. I would be remiss if I had not mentioned in getting my appointment to Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, Senator Peter Harder, who supported me, and the former president and CEO of the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, Michael Binder. Also, the Right Honourable Monsieur Chrétien had continuously supported, with ministers and senators, our bilateral relationship with Kazakhstan and beyond. This is particularly important to note. The premiers and of the provinces and territories, as well as our companies, were critical to any of our successes.
0: You've been listening to Icebreakers, the podcast produced by Serba, a nonprofit business association supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can join our LinkedIn group to send questions to guests and find more information about the podcast series in general on our website at www.serbanet.org. Thanks for tuning in.